Hi, I'm Kate Carrigan. I acknowledge the Gadigal and Wongal people of the Aora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being made, and pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. This time on Croaky Voices, a journey into rural and remote medicine. The challenges? How to bring the health outcomes of those who live outside metropolitan areas up to par with those who do? How's COVID-19 affected services in regional Australia? To do that, I'm joined by the former and inaugural Rural Health Commissioner, Professor Paul Worley, from the Predo Centre for Research in Health Professions Education at Flinders University in Adelaide. Hi. And the newly minted Commissioner, Dr Ruth Stewart, former Director of Rural Clinical Training and Support at James Cook University from her home on Thursday Island in the Torres Strait. Good morning, Kate. Now, Paul, first to you, after two years as the nation's first rural health commissioner, in a nutshell, what is the prognosis for those living in remote and rural areas? The prognosis for people living in rural and remote areas has become clearer, I think, over these last two years. Firstly, they have a cadre of very talented and very committed health professionals who are serving them. Secondly, there are not enough of those committed and talented health professionals. Therefore, their access to health services is less. Therefore, their vulnerability to issues such as COVID-19, to chronic disease, to injury, to mental health, is greater than people living in the cities. Thankfully, they are also very creative communities and communities that have an ability to pull together. And so they are creating solutions for these challenges. So what do you think then are the major challenges now to overcome more of those barriers? I think the Treasurer put things quite clearly for our whole country that we have some challenges around our extended supply lines and around our self-sufficiency. And he could have been talking about rural health, in particular rural health workforce, that has for decades relied on extended supply chains of workforce, i.e. people who are trained elsewhere and have a very fragile route to get to rural areas. For that reason, often either don't make it or if they do find all sorts of obstacles to staying for a long time. Implicit in that has been a suggestion that rural communities shouldn't or can't be responsible for creating their own workforce, that uh, self-sufficiency opportunity that our country has coming out of COVID. The good news is that With the work that's been done in various educational sectors and health service sectors over the last couple of decades, we know that rural communities can be self-sufficient, can have programs to deliver health professionals in their communities, for their communities, by their communities. What we have to overcome is the city centricity of our health service and education sectors and realise that rural and remote communities, and remote in particular, can be self-sufficient and we can recruit bright, creative and committed students 
into those programs who can then stay and be the workforce of the future. Ruth, you come from a background of 30 years as a rural doctor. Would you agree with what Paul just said there about those solutions? I couldn't agree more with what uh, Paul's just said. And I particularly love that concept that we have solutions already in Australia. It's just that they're widely scattered I certainly see one of my roles as heading up the office that actually connects and broadcasts the success stories. I'm sick of hearing about what rural doesn't have. Rural and remote communities in Australia have a lot of wonderful things, enthusiasm and passion and commitment, health professionals who really want to make a difference. At the moment, those health professionals in many places are working, are struggling to work in a system that doesn't work for their context and I'm looking forward to Australia being able to offer those wonderful, inspiring health professionals fit for purpose model of care. One of the things you did, one of your major achievements as the inaugural Rural Health Commissioner, Paul, was to put in place the Rural Generalist Pathway. How big a difference will that change make? Firstly, it's really important that I acknowledge that the Rural Generalist Pathway was put in place by a team of people from around the country, and particularly the current National Rural Health Commissioner, uh, Dr Ruth Stewart. The pathway plan and strategy started with what's become known as the Collin Grove Agreement, which was where the two GP colleges came together and agreed on a definition of rural generalist practice and rural generalist training. That definition then enabled the pathway to be put around an agreed concept of what uh, was needed in the bush. And it inspired the government to say, well, it's not only medicine, but it's also allied health that needs to have this approach and how can we improve the access, quality and distribution of allied health professionals. The difference that the pathway will make is that the pathway explicitly says rural communities need to take responsibility and need to be funded to take responsibility for creating their own health workforce. As Ruth says, that workforce needs to be in a health system that is designed and specific for their context. And if COVID has shown us anything in the health sector, it's shown us that we don't need to get people together in large lecture theatres in the middle of our cities in order to give them a high-quality education. It's shown us that we can learn in a distributed fashion. And that is ideally what we need to put in place across our rural and remote locations from the beginning of medical school right through to achieving fellowship not stuck there uh, because you can't go anywhere else, but staying because you can't find anywhere better. Allowing people to move to the city or to other countries for part of their education, but knowing that the magnetic north of their education, the place that they come back to, the place that those students and registrars and teachers call home, are our rural and remote communities. And therefore, they will be able to say, I trained on Thursday Island. I trained in Kintour. Uh, I trained in Port Hedland. 
rather than I trained in Royal Prince Alfred or I trained at the Royal Melbourne. Not that any of those are better than the others. They're just different. And it's in, those differences are important because training in the Royal Melbourne does not prepare you to work at Thursday Island just as working in Thursday Island doesn't prepare you ideally to work at Royal Melbourne. Yes, you can make the transition from either to the other. And the, and the important thing is from either to the other. You can train in Thursday Island and subsequently work at Royal Melbourne with the appropriate additional training, just as you can do currently from Royal Melbourne with additional training, etc., and get to the bush. But we need that self-sufficiency. And that is going to be an economic and social boon uh, to our rural communities because it will create jobs. And, and Ruth, how important do you see regional universities in this picture? Uh, very important. We know that if you take a rural student and put them in a medical school, you increase the chances of getting a rural doctor after graduation. But that it's relatively easy to convert that rural student into an urban doctor if you don't pay much attention to their rural education whilst they're sitting down in the city. So if you take an, a rural student, place them in a rural or regional training environment and give them positive exposure to rural medicine, good support, they maintain their interest in working in rural and remote contexts. If you then also give them postgraduate training opportunities in rural and remote locations, you increase yet again. So if you add each of those building blocks together into a clearly defined pathway for training, you dramatically increase the chances that you will have a rural-ready doctor or health professional at the end of their training. So rural and regional universities and clinical schools are very, very important in this planning. And Ruth, you're based on Thursday Island, so you have had a special insight into working with the Thursday Island community and uh, in remote practice. Will better Indigenous health outcomes be one of your priorities in the role as Rural Health Commissioner? Yes, it certainly is. I couldn't take any position of responsibility and resile from that sense I have that one of the most important challenges for health professionals in Australia is to address the closing gap. There are many things that we know are needed. And I acknowledge that Paul spoke often about this during his tenure as uh, Rural Health Commissioner. The first is to acknowledge the Indigenous understanding of wellness. It's not just physical absence of disease, it's health, a healthy mind, a healthy body in a healthy community, in a healthy environment. So the connection to country, the care for country, care for community, care for family, are very deeply embedded in wellness. Within that context, you need to have clinicians who understand that and who the community are very happy to go along and see. And unfortunately, many of our community members in remote Australia, the Indigenous peoples of Australia, have had really bad experiences of institutional racism within our health system. If they walk in and see an Indigenous practitioner, they are less likely to assume that they're going to have a bad outcome. 
and they'll be looking at a practitioner who understands their concept of wellness. So one of the first things that we must do, but it's quite a long lag time for this, is to increase the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who train for jobs in our healthcare system, for nursing, for physiotherapy, for speech therapy, for medicine, for radiology, for pharmacy. So that's, that's mm-hmm. a first and also address and cultural competency and cultural safety and, and racism generally within the, the health sector? Look, I think cultural competence is, is a pretty low hurdle to leap over and I'm constantly appalled to have people tell me that they've been culturally trained and they won't look at an Aboriginal patient in the eye. That just demonstrates very basic and rudimentary acknowledgement that there are different cultural mores in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And it's not a widespread issue. If you walk into a consulting room in the Torres Strait, a Torres Strait Islander will look you straight in the eye and expect you to do the same. And they'll expect you to honour them and their community and their elders. So cultural engagement and sensitivity is very important and recognition and understanding. I would love to get to a stage where I never hear the phrase non-compliant patient. When I hear that, I think, you tell me how this health system has actually met the needs of this person and then try and explain that away as non-compliance again. We struggle in Australia to meet the uh, cultural needs of many of our non-white Anglo-Saxon Christian consumers. Well, speaking of First Nations people and also speaking of COVID-19, Indigenous health organisations have been very successful in meeting the challenges in keeping communities safe. For both of you, do you think there's lessons we can take from that generally in how we are responding to COVID-19? Yes, look, I'm going to answer that question, Kate, from my perspective in the Taurus and Cape. We have not had one case of COVID-19 in the Taurus Straits or Cape York Peninsula. I credit that largely to the fact that the communities were put in charge. The Cape York Peninsula and Torres Strait were placed under the biosecurity laws, and that's because the communities asked for that to be the case. It wasn't that government arrived and pronounced this is what you will do. There was a deep level of consultation with communities about what they wanted and how to enable community members to feel safe. They took the protection under the Biosecurity Act and the communities did feel safe. Oh, you know, it says with every community there are some members who who rail against the prohibitions. The lesson of that is not to take a patriarchal, the system knows best, and have the the community members deeply involved in the decision-making. We actually know this. We've known this for a long time, and we keep ignoring it. Can I add to that, agreeing totally that we have a lot to learn from the wisdom of local elder-led solutions? The other issue that COVID has raised is the increased vulnerability of 
Aboriginal communities and Torres Strait Islander communities because when you look at most recent uh, Close the Gap report, it revealed that there's a very stark difference in the morbidity and mortality experienced by rural and remote Indigenous populations compared to urban Indigenous populations. So just as there is a gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous, there is an even greater gap between Indigenous rural and remote communities and Indigenous urban communities. So one of the things that COVID has raised for our whole society is how can we decrease our vulnerability to these issues and raise the issues of uh, diabetes, of cardiac disease, of obesity, of immune compromise. And the frustrating fact is that those issues are still more dominant and more prevalent in our remote Indigenous communities. So one of the, the lessons from COVID is how can we use that same community empowerment, that same community leadership to reduce the burden of disease that is there? In other words, how can we use a strength to overcome a challenge? And part of the way of doing that is getting cities and urban people out of the way and allowing remote and rural communities with their Indigenous leaders and in those communities where there isn't a high Indigenous population, allowing their civic leaders as well to start taking responsibility and accountability and being able to lead their own solutions so that the burden of disease, the frustration of your destiny being defined by a postcode rather than who you are as a human being, can be overcome. Um, I'm going to add to that. I realised while Paul was talking that I was feeling a rising wave of frustration. I was just thinking, yeah, that's what happens all the time. We have people coming down from the city and telling us what we should do without listening. And we wonder why we have inappropriate models that don't work. I'm reminded of the principle that I learnt in my training as a GP that's I am the expert in the disease, but this person sitting in front of me is the expert on themselves and their experience, and I should not confuse the two. It's a bit like that. so disrespectful to turn up in a community and just tell them what to do, mm. and that happens all the time. So more listening and local solutions. And just adding to that, I have uh, sometimes been criticised as emphasising local solutions and therefore where does that place the people who have come from elsewhere to serve and be part of rural communities? In particular, I want to say that those city people who have committed their lives to making rural communities better, we say thank you. Those international graduates, overseas trained doctors, overseas trained nurses and allied health professionals who've moved to our country areas and worked where there haven't been enough Australians working, we say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We thank God for you being prepared to do this. And now is the time for those people to allow the rural communities that they have served to take charge so that those people 
who have been providing that service can now be the supervisors or the facilitators of a locally grown health system and health workforce. Look, both of you, what strains and stresses has COVID-19 put on our rural health professionals? I think it just highlighted how communities rely on fly-in, fly-out and the special stresses that puts on a community. And in fact, there have been some cases where rural communities have had COVID introduced by flying player members of staff. So I think the other observation I would make is that uh, uh, the COVID crisis has once again given rural clinicians an opportunity to show their creativity and their commitment and their courage. So in the midst of that crisis and actually before the government started its respiratory clinic strategy, Rural doctors were already starting their own respiratory clinics where patients could get tested. They could provide safe care for their patients. We've seen COVID clinics, respiratory clinics set up in rural generalist practices across the country. To me, what that's done is it's done two things. It's said to patients, you can have a place where you can get safely cared for if you have respiratory symptoms. And it's also said to all the other areas of the health service, because the patients who are likely to be infectious are going to this particular clinic, all our other places are far safer. Our hospitals were safer places because we were able to have these patients cared for in other places. Importantly, practices started coming together and sharing resources Uh, sharing rosters in these respiratory clinics, working together to refer patients. So it's shown us again that for rural health systems to be successful, they've got to go across towns, across regions, across historical boundaries uh, to have a whole system approach. So, yes, there have been great stresses and, yes, there's been great opportunities for rural communities again to show that uh, they really can shine. Well, speaking about that, telehealth has exploded during COVID-19. There have been much more money put into it. How much has it helped in tackling some of the disparities in health outcomes for people in rural locations? And how can it be used in doing exactly what you two have just been saying, providing local solutions? My answer to that is always telehealth is a wonderful way to enable access, but it does not replace face-to-face. Telehealth is great to enable people to connect with the appropriate pieces of the continuity model of care, but it is problematic when it is offered as a replacement to continuity of primary health care. It's great that urban Australia has suddenly seen that telehealth works and can be done because they now understand how it could possibly work in rural and remote Australia. I'm really looking forward to a future that has a much stronger role for telemedicine and much greater support for it. But when I hear, oh, good, we've got telehealth, now we fix the rural health problem, no. And uh, adding to that, Ruth, absolutely. The same principle goes for using the, the telehealth approach in education. What we're not talking about there is having city based academics teaching remotely located students. There has to be face-to-face 
by remote and rural clinicians as a key component of uh, this education process. And that's why it is a process that will bring jobs to the bush. Important to recognise too, Kate, when you talk about telehealth, that of course, we have 100 years of telehealth in Australia through the RFDS, one of the first national telehealth systems in the world. And we have almost that long in teleeducation with the School of the Air. So we have a remarkable history on which to draw and the support that the federal government has given to telehealth. We can be very, very thankful for and we can look forward to that being a part of our health and education system for the foreseeable future. So it is a part, but we have to be careful, especially when you're using it, I suppose, with such high rates of suicide in the country and mental illness that you don't want to just be relying on, on remote health, on telehealth for those sorts of consultations. Well, actually, telehealth has helped the mental health uh, sector make the adaption that they were reluctant to make to using telehealth. It has really increased access to psychiatrists and psychologists in particular, but that access should never replace the opportunities for face-to-face. For example, for those people who are listening to this podcast, there are lots of things that you can't pick up about the subjects of things that I'm saying because you can't see what my body language is. It's the same as telehealth. So I'll just leave you wondering what my body language is at the moment. (laughs) And Kate, there are some perversities in the current system. For instance, although we know that there are no resident psychiatrists east of Melbourne in Victoria, One of the the disincentives for being a resident psychiatrist in the east of Melbourne is that you will actually get paid more to do telehealth from Melbourne to Bairnsdale than seeing a patient face-to-face in Bairnsdale. We understand why that was put in place in order for there to be an incentive to get people starting to think about telehealth, but surely we need to get the incentives to be there for that face-to-face care that that Ruth has so clearly pointed out reveals so much more and gives so much more opportunity for care and health improvement. Mm. You need specialists. It's difficult though, isn't it? But you need the specialists in the rural areas, don't you? Because I have heard of stories where specialists will be flown at exorbitant fees down to a rural location to consult and... uh, it's just mind-blowing some of the money <laughs> they'll get paid to do that whereby there aren't the specialists in those regional centres. I know I can't wave a magic wand, but it does seem to be a problem. And in actual fact, you've nail on the head of why we need rural generalists there, Kate, because where it isn't uh, cost-effective to have a resident specialist service, and in many Uh, rural and remote locations, it's not cost-effective to have a sustainable rural and remote service because that's not a solo specialist. To have a sustainable service, you have to have four or five so that they can be on a decent roster of each specialty. And where that's not possible, that's where you need rural general practitioners to have those additional skills in that specialty to be able to provide some of those key specialist services as a rural generalist. And in order to get the incentives right for that, 
why when a rural generalist is looking and caring for a patient with acute psychiatric illness, why do they get paid a third the amount that a specialist psychiatrist would for providing the same service? And the specialist psychiatrist would probably provide that service by telehealth from the comfort of their city office. Well, the Federal Regional Health Minister says location no longer needs to be a determinant of access to quality health services and care. Are we there yet? We're not there yet. Um, we, uh, we hope to be. And I'm really excited to be working alongside a minister who has that vision. And I'm looking forward to adding my bit of effort to the work that Paul and his team have put in. And we are pushing Australia further along that path. And you'll and have two assistant commissioners for Indigenous yes, Health, Nursing right. and Allied Health. That, that's really going to help you in your work. It's going to really enable a lot more work to be done and it brings in more expertise. No matter how hard you try as a doctor, you have had a set of goggles pretty firmly placed in the centre of your face and it's always good to be working with colleagues who can make sure you see the things that you need to see and that's what I'm looking forward to working with the Deputy Commissioners for so that I will have two expert Deputy Commissioners who can help guide the work of my office. In many ways Kate what we have and what we know is that we have a plan to achieve that vision of the Minister and likewise uh, I think it's been great working with ministers and a government that really has caught this vision. So we have a plan, we have the strategy, uh, we now need to implement. And that is going to be the responsibility of not just the Commonwealth government, but also the state governments and also the professional bodies to align with the strategy, with the plan and really make this happen in a way that serves rural and remote communities. And I think we are, as you you said, Kate, very fortunate to have a commissioner with a team who gets this, who understands it and is going to be able to provide the leadership that rural and remote communities need in order to be able to implement these plans. As we've discussed, the health outcomes are worse in a whole range of areas in rural settings. But studies have also found, and you two have alluded to it, that generally there is a high level of satisfaction with living in the country. So what's your message for young health professionals thinking of working in regional and remote centres? My message is I think I've had the best career possible and I just can't believe that young health professionals aren't lining up to follow. So I'm hoping that the work that Paul has done and the work that my office will continue on that sound basis will help health professionals to see the extraordinary opportunities to really make a difference in people's lives that you have when you go to work in rural Australia and live just the best life, you know. Yeah. All of that is absolutely true. It's a fantastic life. It's a fantastic experience being a rural health professional. And it would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that, for me, the advice I would give to people who are interested in a rural career is have a chat with your partner first. Talk to your partner. Talk to your family. 
because their interests and ability to thrive are also going to be key to you being a successful rural health practitioner. And Kate, this is one of the system reasons why we don't have the vision implemented yet. Because when you take rural kids or you take city kids who are interested in rural practice and you train them in cities, they meet partners who are living in the cities, have jobs in the cities, have family connections and recreational connections in the cities. And to then put pressure on them and say, well, you've all got to go to the bush. Don't mind that that's not your country. Uh, that's where you've got to go. I would say to those people, no, listen to your partners. That's not fair. And I would say to the system, let's change the system so that it actually works to our advantage. So if we're training people in rural areas, they're meeting friends, family, partners in those rural areas. We're not going to have to convince them to, to stay in those rural areas. That's their country. That's their home. That's their land. We're probably going to have to convince them to go to the city for part of their training. Mm -hmm. That's the situation we want to, uh, to get our system in. So let's not blame the people who we're currently training for not going there enough. Let's change the system so that there's a natural group of people who absolutely want to stay there because that's where home is. <laughs> Sorry, Kate, I was just going to tell you a story of some years ago when we had struggled to find an appropriate solution for secondary schooling for our oldest son and we explored the schools in various nearby towns and we sat the family down around the kitchen table and we said, look, um, we just haven't been able to work out a solution that we think will be satisfactory. Perhaps we need to think about living in the city. And our kids looked at us and went, you're kidding? We've heard what you've always said about having to work in the city. No, 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 it's all right. We'll go to boarding school instead. I would love to have that kind of conversation happening far more often because the whole family is aware of how dedicated to rural medicine their parents are. Yeah, that's a great, yeah. great story. Professor Paul Worley and Commissioner, new Commissioner, Ruth Stewart, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank, thanks, Kate. That's it for Croaky Voice's special dive into rural health. If you live in a remote or rural community and would like to tell us your health story, please check out our details at croaky.org. Please follow, like and share and consider subscribing to Croaky News for just $60 a year to help us bring you the health stories we love to share with you. Until next time, I'm Kate Carrigan.